You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys here today. My name is Trent Stewart. I'm the lead pastor. If you've got your Bibles, let's go to Matthew chapter 5. We are in the middle, uh, not in the middle, last week we actually started a brand new series entitled Life on the Mountain. And uh, the reason why we're calling it Life on the Mountain is because we wanted to give you a visual of what it kind of looks like and feels like to truly follow Jesus. Because when you are living life on the mountain, you kind of equate it to that hike in the Smoky Mountains where you are you know, climbing. It's a rigorous climb. It's difficult most of the time. But at the top of the mountain, the views are amazing and the rewards are eternal. And so the image that we're trying to, to, to give to you is that we, uh, when we live life on the mountain, we're actually living life like Jesus Because life on the mountain is focused on we, and life in the valley is focused on me. And so essentially, anytime we come off that mountain and we uh, walk into the valleys of life, we are focusing on self. We are focusing on me, and we are choosing not to follow Jesus in that time. And so we're not saying that uh, this is based on your circumstances. If you're having a, you know, a, a bad season of life right now, we're not saying you're living in the valley, uh, because we're going to see as we look at the life of Jesus and what he is teaching us in this passage that it doesn't matter what you're experiencing, it doesn't matter what you're going through, that you can choose to live life On the mountain, Uh, we get our word happiness from the word happens. And so when something good happens to you, we tend to be happy. And when something bad happens to you, you tend to not be happy. But this isn't the kind of happiness that Jesus is talking about. The kind of blessed life, the kind of blessing that Jesus is offering to you and I goes much deeper than our circumstances. It goes much deeper than what things of this world can bring into our life. But at the same time, it's totally opposite from every single human um, uh, emotion or every single thing that, that you think is right. In other words, everything that naturally comes to my mind or naturally I want to do It's often, almost every time, exactly the opposite of what Jesus' life is all about. Um, And so when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it really begins to wreck our life. I love this this quote from C.S. Lewis. He was was told by someone that they hated the Sermon on the Mount. They didn't like the Sermon on the Mount. And here was this, here's what C.S. Lewis responded with. He said, of course you don't. No one likes the sledgehammer that destroys their house, but they help you see the need for grace, and then in response to his gracious act of saving me, these things come more naturally. I love that imagery today because as we read the words of Jesus today, it's going to bring a sledgehammer to your life. Everything that you think is going to bring you happiness is totally wrong. But everything that Jesus says is going to bring happiness into your life is completely right. But we chase after the wrong things constantly. And when we turn to his words, it's like a sledgehammer just pounding away at our mentality, our thought, what we think is, is going to work. And it's totally opposite of the life that Jesus is calling us to live. And so I wanted to pick up in chapter 5 here in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start in verse 7. And remember, he is using the word blessed. And this word blessed means happy. 
And so today's focus is how can you and I live a happy life? You know, what, what does it look like to live a happy life? Well, the first four Beatitudes really connect to the second four that we're going to read today. There's eight total. And as we look at what Jesus says is going to bring happiness to you, it's going to bring a sledgehammer. So just prepare yourself for the words that are coming. Here's what Jesus says in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, we're going to start in verse 7. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, what is he saying here? What, what does mercy actually mean? Well, to be merciful to someone essentially means that you are showing them not just compassion, but you're giving them the, this, this idea that you're giving someone who is in need of help, help. So someone who is in misery, someone who is in pain, you are actually meeting a, a physical need in their life. You are showing them mercy. So mercy is this action of relieving a, a someone who is in distress, someone who is going through a difficult season. So for someone whose house just burnt down, it's not just, oh man, I'm sorry your house burnt down. That, that must really stink. Mercy is actually saying, okay, get everything that you have left and come live with us until you can figure it out. That's mercy because it's in action. It's, it's showing not just sympathy and compassion, but in action we're doing something to solve the distress of someone else. Um, when you think about it in terms of, of, of mercy, Jesus gives this parable uh, that we call uh, the, the parable of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the, the parable goes like this. Jesus says there's a guy who's traveling and uh, there were some robbers that beat him up, steal everything, and leave him for dead on the side of the road. And a priest walks by and, and the priest sees him and, and, and doesn't help and doesn't do anything and just walks on by. Then a Levite comes and sees the man on the side of the road and just walks on by. And then a Samaritan comes and sees the man in distress puts the man on his donkey, takes him into town, takes him to a hotel, pays for him to get well, bandages him up, tells the innkeeper, whatever he needs, you put it on my tab, you make sure he gets it, I'm going to take care of him. And then Jesus looks around and, and, and his question is, 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 who is my neighbor? And so Jesus says, okay, so which one in this story is actually demonstrating that he is a neighbor? And the answer and the response is the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus turns and says, okay, go and do likewise. Because for Jesus, mercy is not just, I'm sorry, 
we'll be thinking about you. Mercy is actually doing something for the person who is in distress. Mercy is, is also extending forgiveness. So the merciful person remember his, remembers his own sin, remembers his own pain, remembers that, that he is a sinner, and as a result, understands his weakness, understands that other people have weaknesses as well, and so they extend forgiveness. And so this is huge. So here's a good question. What, what if God basically is going to use the same measuring stick to forgive you that you are using to forgive those who hurt you? Does that make sense? So, so out of the, the measure that you are using to forgive your ex, to forgive your boss, to forgive your spouse, God is going to use that same amount of forgiveness and that same measuring stick to forgive you. How would that work for you and I? Probably not too good because we're all about receiving a lot of forgiveness from God. We're not about extending that forgiveness, but this is what mercy means. It means us, you and I, being willing to offer that forgiveness. And, and the word actually takes an even deeper meaning uh, when you think of it in terms of the word that Jesus most likely was using here. Remember, Jesus is speaking in Aramaic, so very close to Hebrew. And so the Hebrew word that, that Jesus most likely was using here for mercy is the word hesed. And it means the loving kindness of God. And so God is showing mercy, his loving kindness in the cross, in forgiveness to us. Even though we did not deserve it, he is extending this to you and I. One commentator said this about this word. He said this means it's the ability to get right inside the other person's skin until we can see things with his eyes, think things with his mind, and feel things with his feelings. See, this is what, what it means to forgive and to show mercy on someone, to put yourself in their skin, to see as they see, essentially to put yourself in their shoes. And when you begin to live your life with such a merciful heart as God has given to you, you're beginning to see from the perspective of someone else. And when I see the perspective of someone else, then I can begin to extend mercy to them. It's really difficult to forgive someone if you aren't seeing things from their perspective. You've heard the statement, hurt people hurt people. And the reason is because people hurt you because they have been hurt themselves. And because they have been hurt by a parent or by someone else in their life, those people tend to hurt us. Now, it doesn't mean that it's okay to hurt us. It just means that there are reasons why they act the way that they do and, and, and how they've hurt you. And so the hard work of a follower of Jesus is putting ourselves in the shoes of someone else, seeing from their perspective. And as I do that, I am more free, I am more able to then extend forgiveness to them. Now, verse 8, verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, the heart is that inner person. The heart explains the, the inner motives and the inner attitudes. It's your personality. It's the control center of your mind. It's the control center of your emotions. And so that's why Jesus says, you know, blessed, happy are those who have a pure heart. Now, that outer man is easy to hide and conceal, isn't it? I mean, it's really easy for me to kind of put on a show and show everybody today how great of a person I am. 
It's really easy on Instagram to only post the great moments of my life. The, the moments where everybody has you know, makeup on and everybody is smiling and everybody's dressed well. And, and we like to present to the world that everything is just great. Because the outer person is really easy to control. It's really easy to monitor. But, but Jesus is calling us to, in fact, reach and desire and seek purity of heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all things, guard your heart. Above all things, guard your heart. Why? Because it's the seat of your emotions. Out of your heart, you're making decisions. Out of your heart, you're living your life. It reveals what's important to you, what you value. And Jesus is saying, value me. Value purity. Purity just simply means that you're, you're cleansing your heart from any filth, any contamination. You're cleansing your heart from any sin. Uh, purification means that you're, you're really, not, it's, it's not just getting rid of dirt. It's this idea that your, your heart has uh, essentially uh, mixed motives. And your heart has mixed priorities. And he says, I, I want you to, to purify those motives and purify those priorities. Stop saying that you love me and living your life this way. Stop, you know, stop, stop saying that you're going to do this and then do something completely different. So our priorities, our motives, our heart are seeking purity. And as we seek purity, he says you're going to experience happiness. You're going to experience joy in your heart. And so he says happy are those who seek purity. Happy are those who seek purity for they will recognize the power of God in their life. Now this is huge because we all the time we look around and we, we, we act like God's not around. And we say, God, why don't you give me a sign? God, why don't you you know, put something in the sky, you know, have a bird chirp or, you know, let me see your, let me see this or that so that I know you're there. And God's like, come on, man, that's not how it works. Happy are those who seek purity. When you seek purity, you'll begin to recognize the power of God around you. But when you are allowing all the impurities of the world to consume your heart, all the impurities of what you watch, what you listen to, some of the unhealthy relationships in your life, it will cloud your vision. You can only see what you're able to see. Think about that. I can only see what I'm able to see. Think about it in terms of, of, of art. If you and I were to go to uh, an art museum today and, and we were to go look at one of those abstract art paintings, and let's just say you're an art major and uh, you see this beautiful piece of art and uh, you're going to be like blown away and you're going to see all the intricacies and you're going to be emotional about it. You might even cry over this abstract art. It's beautiful, man. Look at this. For me, I'm only able to see what I can see. And all I see is a three-year-old spilled a bucket of paint, you know, on, on a canvas. And that's what it looks like to me. You know, uh, for the scientist, the botanist who studies plants and flowers, and they're, they're, they're walking around, you know, this spring and, and uh, in East Tennessee, they're like, oh, look at this flower and look at this amazing whatever. And they're in the Smokies and they're identifying all this and they're blown away by the beauty of God's creation and, and all the beautiful flowers and beautiful colors. And they're explaining all this and they're just stirred in their heart. And for the rest of us, all you see is allergy season. <laughs> Because we see what, what we're only able to see. Jesus is saying, if you want to recognize the power of God, 
then you need to seek and pursue purity. Because when you and I begin to seek purity and we begin to rid ourselves from uh, improper motives, when we begin to rid ourselves of priorities that aren't important and begin to focus on the, the main priority, which is Jesus, as we pursue holiness and purity in our life, we'll begin to see the power of God at work in our marriage, at work at, at, in our culture, at work in our church, but only until we see that, only until we pursue that power. And so blessed, happy are those who pursue righteousness, for they will see God. I love it. Um, Here's another concept. Like, when we're thinking about um, clarity and we're trying to pursue God's word or trying to trying to understand God's will. I mean, that's a question that a lot of people in church are asking. Like, what is God's will? And, 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 and what am I supposed to do here? So, so a lot of people feel like God is like playing hide and seek with his will. Should I take this job? Or should I move here? Or should I go here? And it's like, God's up, oh, you know, like, oh, over here. No, 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 it's over here. And we kind of get frustrated with God. And it's not like that's what he's trying. He's not trying to hide his will for our life. But, but here's the reality, like purity begins to lead to clarity. And so when I, when I begin to seek purity in my life, then, then things become more clear. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is crystal clear and boom, now I know exactly what God is saying. It's not like that. But, but certainly as my heart is pure and as my motives are pure and as I'm seeking righteousness in my life, things will begin uh, become more clear because then it won't be just chasing after a job for more money. It won't be just chasing after a relationship because it feels good. It'd be like, no, 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 what is the right thing to do here? And so I'm searching and I'm seeking purity in my life, and that's going to begin to lead to clarity. Let's keep going. Let's look at verse uh, 9. He says in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, The interesting thing about a peacemaker is oftentimes when we think of peace, we think of just simply absence of conflict, right? There's no, nobody's fighting. And so it must be a peaceful situation. But if you're married, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean things are good, right? Doesn't necessarily mean things are peaceful. If you're not yelling at each other, your wife could be extremely upset at you and it could be quiet in the house because she doesn't want to talk to you or look at you. We, you know, that's never happened to me, but maybe it's happened to you. I don't know. I mean, that doesn't mean that things are peaceful if there's an absence of conflict. No, it goes much, much deeper than that. The Hebrew word is the word shalom. And that word for for, uh, peace in in the Hebrew language, essentially not just the absence of conflict, but it means peace and and a spiritual wholeness, like the the, the entire uh, realm of just kind of everything. There's a spiritual health in wholeness. There's a, there's a peace in that environment. And that's what I believe Jesus is asking us to seek in our life, to become someone who wants that to exist in our life, in our relationships, in our families. A peacemaker is someone who, who wants any given, any given situation to experience this spiritual health and wholeness. Now, in order to experience that, You can't just avoid difficult conversations. You can't just walk on eggshells. A lot of people believe that, okay, if I want peace, then I just can't talk about what's bothering me. So I'm just going to bottle it up inside. And and that's not what a peacemaker does. 
that's not what's actually going to bring peace in your life. In fact, if you're avoiding difficult conversations, most likely it's going to lead to more disunity in your family, more disunity in whatever relationship you're, you're thinking through. But a peacemaker is someone who prioritizes the relationship over personal vindication and, and being right. So essentially, uh, happy are those that value relationships over being right. It's essentially, I think, the concept of what he's trying to tell us. Now think about it. We think we're going to be happy if we prove our point and we drop the mic on somebody. Got him, and I'm right, and everybody claps, and I walk out of the office, and I say, see you later, suckers, right? That's how we think happiness is going to happen. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Happy are those that value the relationship over being right. Um, I had an argument with my wife this week. Um, actually, we don't call it arguments. We call them intense fellowships. And so we had an intense fellowship moment this week, and, and I kind of felt like I had won the argument, and, and so I was going to just share it with you. So, like, I was getting home late, and um, my wife decided that she was going to grill some hamburgers uh, for the family, which was awesome. I'm usually the grill guy, but uh, she, she decided to do it. And so, so I get home, and, and, and uh, we eat the, the, the meal. The burgers were great, and, and you know, and, and, and so it was after I ate that she informed me that when she went to the grill, it had been a while since we've grilled, so she opened up the grill, and there was a wasp nest in the, in the grill with wasp on it. Um, and so, you know, typically, you know, what a guy would do is he'd go get a broom or, you know, a magazine or something and kind of swat the fly or swat the wasp in the nest out, you know, and take care of it that way. Well, my wife decided to go get the wasp spray, and uh, so then she, she brings the spray, and she sprays the wasp and, and of course, does, it does its work. It kills, and, and, and then, you know, the nest and all that kind of stuff. And, and so I'm listening to this story, and I'm like, so, so, so you, you sprayed poison in, in, into the grill, and then you grilled our hamburgers on it? Is that what I'm hearing right now? She's like, oh, well, I wiped it up. I'm like, wiped it up? So... So you grilled our, so, so our hamburgers were steamed in poison, and I just ate it. Do you not see a problem with this? And so, I mean, I, I had a good point, and I think if we were to go around the room, everybody would see my point. <laughs> and I feel like I was right, but at the end of the day, by the time that conversation got to the end of, you know, that moment, what I had done is I, pri I prioritized me proving my point above honoring my wife. And guys, that's going to get us in trouble every single time. If you care more about proving that you are right, if you care more about you know, proving your point than honoring that relationship, honoring your wife, then you're going to continue to demonstrate a level of terrible husbandry. <laughs> That's even a phrase. I don't know. Like for some of us, we've got to get to a, a point in our life where we see the words of Jesus and we actually begin to live them out. It's not just a cool phrase and like, oh, man, that's good. I, I believe in that. And I've... No, you've got to move to a point to where you stop caring about being right and you stop arguing, arguing to prove your point and you care more about caring for your wife than you do about proving your point. You care more about honoring the relationships in your work environment than you do about making somebody else look bad 
or dropping the mic on somebody else at work to prove that you are right and they are wrong. Face, get some of that. Boom. That prideful moment that you have for five seconds is totally deflated when you begin to recognize how you are making other people feel. Because that's essentially what we really, really need to look at, right? Like, when I look at my wife and how I make her feel, that's, the, that's what I have, to, I have to be aware of. Not, did I make a point and do I look right? She's going to remember how I make her feel every time. And so as a follower of Jesus, like, I want to live life on the mountain. I don't want to live in the valley. If I want to live on the mountain, I'm focused on we, which means I'm focused on others, so I want to know how my words, I want to know how, how, how I, am, I am handling the conflict in my life. And how I handle it determines how people are going to feel about themselves. And so I want to always value the relationship over being right. So a peacemaker says, I value the relationship more than I value being right. Now, we need more peacemakers in God's church. Like, Churches are notorious for being gossiping, dissenting, mean people. <laughs> I mean, that's just the reality. Not so much our church, but let's not pretend like it doesn't happen. Where someone gossips about a leader, or they gossip about somebody's kids, or there's a teacher that gets gossip about because of a situation, and a lot of that happens in small groups, a lot of that happens in side conversations in the hallways, and, and uh, a lot of criticism and negativity happens in God's church, and, and, and Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, not peacetakers, and so in God's church, we, we need men and women who are actually focused on bringing a spiritual health and a spiritual wholeness into the body of Christ and not only avoiding those conversations, but when someone says, hey, did you hear about? You pump the brakes and say, you know what? I don't know that I need to be a part of this conversation. I don't know that I need to hear this. Another example of being a peacemaker is in our country when racial tension explodes and it will again, and as soon as it happens in the next event, how will you respond as a peacemaker? Now, if you're a white American like me, and you long to become a peacemaker, then we need to enter these conversations with a little bit more peacemaking mentality. We need to realize, if you are white today and an American, that you are raised a certain way, you live in, in, in a certain environment, and you had some, some opportunities that led you to think that the way you, you think today. It, it really influenced your opinion today. It happened for me as well. And so what we have to do as peacemakers is enter these race-filled conversations, not with a, hey, you, 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 but more with an understanding. I don't want to bring more division. I want to bring more peace. And so our heart then as we enter these conversations is to say, look, I know I have my opinion and how I was raised and, and what I've experienced, but I want to seek to understand why this upsets you. And so to a person of color, how does this grieve you? Why, why does this affect you in this way? And, and as a peacemaker, I, I, I'm sensitive to that and I want to I wanna learn and I want to understand and I don't just want to point a finger and I just don't want my emotions to raise up in me because a lot of that's just sinfulness and pride and, and baggage that I've carried into the conversation. And 
And I want to be pure of heart, and I want to enter that conversation as a follower of Jesus. We're called to bring people together, not increase the divide. Verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And we can't breeze past the righteousness' sake portion of that. Because a lot of times we think blessed are those who are persecuted and we want to put a period there. And so when people are being negative about us at work or whatever because we're constantly late or constantly you know, you know, negative at work that people are persecuting me and, and, and those, are, those are legit concerns that people have with you. The, the point Jesus is making here is for righteousness sake. So on account of being a follower of Jesus, people are persecuting you. It could mean harassment. I know a lot of times as soon as we see that word, we think about the 25 Christians who were killed in Nigeria yesterday, I believe, or the day before yesterday. That's happening all over the, the globe where, where people, uh, because of their faith, are being tortured, killed, thrown in prison. Now, in America, we're not, we, don't, we don't experience it on that level. But I think what Jesus is saying is anytime you're harassed, you're ostracized because of your faith in me, yes, including physical abuse or imprisonment, yes, that includes that, But anytime you are harassed in that way, because we're a follower of Jesus, he says, you're going to be happy. You're going to be blessed. And and, and so we're not going to be happy in the moment that we are being harassed because of our faith. Oh, man, I'm so, no, no, no. But that's going to ultimately be our happiness. So if, if, if you are not included in the group because you're a follower of Jesus, you didn't get invited to the party because they knew that you were a goody, goody. Right? And so you got left out. Jesus says, blessed are you when someone isn't happy with your moral opinion about a certain subject, abortion, whatever else it might be, hot topic in our culture. He says, when you are ostracized because of that moral opinion and belief, that value that you have based on your biblical understanding, blessed are you? Happy are you? Here's how I put it in your notes. Happy are those who value pleasing God above all things. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be happy when I value pleasing God more than I do the friends that I want to be included with. And so I change my opinion or I don't speak out. Happy are those who value pleasing God even when they don't get invited to the party. Even when you don't get the the raise, even when you don't get the promotion. Happy are those who seek to please God above all things. You see, when we think in terms of persecution, sometimes sometimes we only think of the get thrown in prison. We think in terms of of, of all these harsh things, and and we forget the idea that, that as followers of Jesus, we should be experiencing persecution on many levels. So here's the real question. If you have never been uninvited to the party, if you've never not been included in the group because of your morals or your faith, then the real question is, are you even a child of God? Are you really even in the kingdom of God? Because that should be happening. It should be an experience that every follower of Jesus has today. Like, like, oh yeah, I didn't get included in this group because they know I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, I, I didn't get the promotion 
And I didn't get that job because they know what my beliefs are about that situation. And so, so Jesus says, expect it. And when we look at this, we ought to say, where is that happening to me? And if it's not happening to me, am I really even demonstrating the life Jesus is calling me to live? The tragedy of our day in America is not that this persecution happens every day, but that it doesn't happen at all. And so we got to look for it. We got to understand it's, it should and must happen. According to Jesus, happiness is not rooted in our circumstances. It's not rooted in what's happening to us, but the end result is that we are in a right relationship with God, and that is the point. The point of this sermon, the point of these beatitudes, is that it would lead us to a right relationship with Jesus, not not rooted in the circumstances of our life, but rooted in the love of Christ demonstrated to us on the cross. And the real question is, if life didn't change for you at all from this moment forward, would you even be able to be happy? Think about that for a minute. If life doesn't change for you, would you be able to experience joy or happiness in this life? If God doesn't answer another one of your prayers, are you still going to want him? Are you still going to want to pursue him? If your situation doesn't improve, will you still say, I want more of Jesus? I, I still want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, that's the question. You know, what happened to, to Jesus, if, if, if what happened to Jesus happened to some of us, we might never experience happiness. Think about that for a second. Like, we want more of Jesus. I want to live like Jesus. Think about what happened to Jesus. If what happened to Jesus happened to some of you, you would never serve him. You would never follow him. You would never experience happiness because for you, happiness is getting married. I got to get married. When's God going to give me the right person? That's like you're, you're, you're honed in. You look at the life of Jesus. He was never married. I got to get that next home. And we got to upgrade and we got to get a better one. And I want that home. But guess what? Jesus never owned a home. And over and over again, we could, we could make comparisons to his life. Think about your friends. Some of you are like, well, I don't have a friend. Nobody cares about me I'm trying to get connected. I don't have friends. Can't trust anybody. Guess what? Neither could Jesus. All of his best friends left him in his greatest time of need. So for some of us, we have to step back when it, when it comes to being happy. We have to recognize, we can, we can really believe what Jesus says is going to make us happy, or you can continue to do the very things that you think are going to make you happy. And isn't that what we do? We pick up the Bible and we're like, oh, to be happy, I need to do this and this and this. Okay, okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to go do this, and then I'm going to be miserable, and then I'm going to complain to God about it. <laughs> it's a vicious cycle, Right? So for us to be happy, Jesus is calling us to a life, a life that, that would not focus on our own needs and our own self, but a life that would focus on the needs of others, that would seek to be a peacemaker, would seek to pursue righteousness, holiness in our heart and our life. And 
we go back to that C.S. Lewis quote, that sledgehammer just kind of comes on everything that we think is going to bring us happiness. Everything that we think is going to bring us joy. And Jesus says, it's not going to happen. This is the way. And when we finally believe him, then and only then do we actually become the salt of the earth. Because when I'm living as a peacemaker, when I'm pursuing righteousness in my life, then I become the salt of the earth, and then I become the light of the world. Why the salt of the earth? Well, salt brings flavor to life, doesn't it? As a follower of Jesus, we should bring flavor to the world. We should bring flavor to our relationships. Salt preserves meat. So as a follower of Jesus, we should preserve the culture in, 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 as it relates to moral and, and ethics. And, and so we, we preserve that relationship. We preserve culture. We become the salt of the earth and we become the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. As a follower of Jesus, your faith cannot be hidden. Let your light shine. How do we let our light shine? Well, we, we live out the Beatitudes. These eight statements that could revolutionize your life, becoming pure in heart, becoming a peacemaker, experiencing persecution, harassment because of our faith, but finding joy in the midst of it anyway. And as we live life, as we actually follow Jesus in this way, we actually become the salt of the earth. We actually become the light of the world. Now, the problem is some of us don't live this. Our priorities are divided. Our motives are divided. We read them as statements, and we don't, we don't seek to apply them to our life. And so out of these eight statements that we've been talking about last week and today, what's the one statement? What's the one area that Jesus kind of tapped you on the shoulder today and, say, and, and, and said, that's it. That's it for you. That's exactly what you need to think about. That's exactly what you need to begin to pursue in your life. Sure, we need to look at all eight, but what's the one for you? I believe that God would show that to you. I pray that he would show that to you. I pray that as you would leave today, it'd be something that you would pursue with all of your heart. Let's bow together and pray. Father, we in this moment come to you seeing your words, sometimes being overwhelmed by them and at the same time being encouraged by them because we know that we don't have to jump through all these hoops and we don't have to live out all of these statements for you to love us or for you to save us. Your grace and your love accomplishes our salvation. And despite our behavior, you choose to save, you choose to love. And so, Lord, we are grateful for that. And because of that gratefulness, our heart today is that we want to live these Beatitudes. We want to live out these statements in our life so that we can become the salt of the earth, so that we can become a light in a dark world. Help our light to shine, Jesus. Help our behavior to align with the life that you are calling us to live. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Let's stand and worship today. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.